Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future Technologies, poised to transform our lives for better or worse, are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hey, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast, Almost Here, Around the Corner Technology. And today I have Paul Snow at Factum. Um, Paul, instead of me bungling it, <laughs> would you tell people what Factum is and what it does? Okay, well, we're a uh, startup here in Austin, Texas. We've been um, live with the Factum protocol since September of 2015. And uh, just got through doing one of our major updates and continuing to work on the protocol, uh, making it faster and better and easier to use. The idea of Factum is to provide a general purpose data layer secured by the Bitcoin blockchain. And we are building um, a platform that will eventually be distributed and autonomous across uh, quite a number of parties. Um, it will have uh, users that are using the protocol uh, driving the um, uh, driving the process of selecting who runs the protocol and um, moving it forward that way. So, so basically people that use the protocol are, are the ones that are calling the shots to decide who runs the protocol. The ones that run the protocol get a certain amount of reward every month um, to incentivize them to want to run the protocol. When you, when you say reward, do they get factoids? Or yeah. Okay. Uh, Factum has a token and the token's existence serves two purposes. Primarily, it provides an incentive for people to run the Factum servers that are central to the protocol's existence, and and secondarily to act as a anti-spam mechanism to prevent people from just throwing trash into the data layer, because um, basically the data layer exists to create. Um, a level of data integrity, uh, a mechanism to prove the data integrity of information that's being exchanged um, via various applications. Okay, so if it was free, there's a potential for abuse, but it has probably some small cost. Yes. Which makes it less likely to be abused. A exactly. Okay. There's a small cost, and so people don't want to spend their own money to spam. And uh, this is a this is a feature that was explored early on with a concept called hash cash with Adam Beck. Um, and the idea was to do some sort of proof of work before you sent every email. And that'd be nice. If if we if every email package required a certain level of proof of work before we considered the email valid, then spam would be impossible because spammers would have to invest in so much computing power that it would no longer be viable to spam people with emails. Um, for whatever reason, it didn't catch on, and that's okay. Uh, but the puzzle, the proof of work that uh, Adam Beck uh, pioneered was uh, eventually picked up by Satoshi Nakamoto, hmm. 
as his proof of work for Bitcoin. Interesting. And um, Bitcoin, as many of you are aware, uh, requires a ever-increasing amount of proof of work as more and more computers are working on the problem of securing the Bitcoin blockchain. Right. And right now, there's just you know huge amounts of of uh, computing power that's built to make these very, very, very difficult to compute hashes for these blocks of data, the, the ledger, the Bitcoin ledger. And um, it, is prob it is certainly the most secure uh, data structure that exists in the world. And, um, and, and yet, despite the massive amount of security that Bitcoin has, the ledger itself is only one megabyte every 10 minutes. And for a lot of data applications, not, not moving value, but simply securing data and securing the provenance of data, basically um, think of it as a document with revisions. If I want to watch that document move through time, I not only need to hash each version of the document, but I have to group them in some way so that I can see what was and what hashes existed in the past, and more importantly, really, what hashes didn't exist. In other yeah. words, to be able to prove the negative on the history of that document. And um, in computer science, anytime you hear a computer science guy say document, you can hear any digital thing. So it could be versions of a song as an artist goes through the creative process of developing uh, music okay. and that would prove not only that he wrote the song but it would document the creative process over time a much stronger proof that he was that that the artist uh, was the originator of uh, some piece of work and yeah, it, like for instance you could document let's say he revised the song five times you know once a month he did a revision. You would document each revision with a timestamp and you'd see the whole creative process essentially. Exactly. And and let's suppose the 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 lady creating this music gets in a lawsuit later on. There have been a number of lawsuits where the only proof of plagiarism is that a song has a, a set of chords that are similar to another song. Right. But in reality there's only so many chords and there's certain chord progressions that exist in almost any music. And, and so it becomes a, a real difficult question whether someone took an existing song and slightly modified it for their purposes or whether through the creative process they happened to land on a few chords that went in the same order and sounded similarly. Um, so, so if you've got the documented creative process, um, I think you would you would have uh, a stronger case. Um, none of this is proved yet, but in in court, but uh, it makes a lot of sense that it, it could work that way. Um, so and is, this, is this the answer to, to the reason behind Factum and what it does, or have we not gotten there yet? Well, yes, and this is what Factum does. Factum provides this mechanism to. Um, to group something, we call them into your own user chain. You can create a user chain for, for some business process, for some creative process, 
for managing some document, uh, for managing some uh, lightweight identity. And, and as you add to that chain, you end up with a group that you can iterate across and examine those entries. Um, each entry in a factum chain is uh, 1 to 10K in size. Okay. And you can stack a bunch of them uh, entries side by side to create bigger data structures. Are you guys hoping that there is, um, I mean, no one hopes for a lawsuit or a court case, but are you hoping that your method? The process by which um, the parties involved build a timeline. Okay. And, and that timeline for a lot of high-risk uh, business processes could be pretty much eliminated if there was effectively an audit trail as parties are moving through a business process, nailing down what happened, who did it, when did it occur, and, and what effectively wasn't done uh, by, by uh, looking at elements that are not in that chain. So um, these lightweight, inexpensive audit trails could um, pretty much revolutionary, re revolutionize a lot of the management of things that today are very difficult to manage. So what do you think would be the best use cases for listeners and for you guys to get this proof of concept out there? Like, What do you ideally want to see happen first? What, what adopters do you want or have? Well, we're, we're working on uh, document management um, in a number of industries, uh, things like uh, uh, healthcare and mortgages and um, uh, sensors for along the border for national security. Those are the projects that we have uh, been talking about in, in the news. Um, for instance, with DHS, they have devices that take pictures and take video. And if they, if the device itself could create hashes and place them into a particular chain and pack them, then um, when DHS says these are the photographs this device took within this period of time, there would be cryptographic proof that A, these were the actual images they took undoctored, and B, they're not withholding anything. Mm. And um, if they did need to withhold something, uh, let's say there was some, for some national security reasons, they couldn't release certain images, those images could be submitted to a court for oversight and provably um, audited for the reasons that they can't be released. And, um, and, and thus, you have a mechanism for holding um, an agency like DHS accountable even if the, the information that's been requested isn't released. Um, okay. This is something that you really don't have today. We, we have a very difficult time uh, with the government when they say they can't with, uh, when they say they cannot release certain information, um, there isn't any proof of how much information they are not releasing. And there's no proof that the oversight actually sees all the data and can evaluate all the data. So this, this, this kind of mechanism can create ways of holding 
even very secret agencies accountable without having to release critical data, you know, basically secret data, confidential data, top secret data, whatever, classified data. You wouldn't have to release that data because you can at least document the sort of data that might exist and prove that, that all that data was reviewed. Is the Bitcoin blockchain pseudonymous enough that you think government agencies would allow their data to be documented there, or you think they're going to want their own private blockchain? Well, see, keep in mind that the way Factum works is Factum does not put data into the Bitcoin blockchain. The only thing that we're getting from the Bitcoin blockchain is the proof of work, the the basically the the, the massive safe that is. Bitcoin that prevents anyone from modifying data. If you modify anything that goes into the Bitcoin ledger, if you modify any of that, you break the hash and you break the proof of work. So I have cryptographic proof that the data hasn't been tampered with. The only thing that Factum puts into the Bitcoin blockchain is a hash. So that hash may be comprised of 10 user chains that have been hashed 20 times all the way down, and I guess you call it like a, a Merkle tree. Yes, so the root of this, this yes. one final hash, that's what's put into the Bitcoin blockchain. That's right. And okay. and, and, and a hash, we, we like to use this uh, um, illustration or this object lesson around here. Brian Deary came up with it. He has, I've got it right here in my hand, a can of corned beef hash. Okay, this could be considered proof of a cow. But if you have this can of hash, you cannot reproduce a cow. You can prove that a cow existed, and if you analyze the DNA, you could prove that it is actually a cow in here. But you could not get the cow from the can of hash. It has been completely crushed down and chopped up and cooked and stuff to the point that there isn't any possible way um, you can reproduce the cow from this, but you could prove that the cow existed. Um, and, and that's the nature of hashes. You take a, a large amount of data and you crush it down to 32 bytes. 32 bytes is just doesn't hold enough information to reproduce the data from whence it came. Right. Much like an address cannot tell you anything about the building that's at the address. If all you have is the address, it can't. You can't tell if you've got an office building, a a, a residential building, a small shack, a mansion. It's just an address, right. and and that's the way hashes work. But unlike an address in a in in a in a building. Um, you know where there isn't really anything about a building that's that that can't you, you know you could build right. a different street you could just go renumber a street and there's a lot of ways addresses and buildings might not be firmly connected um, but a but a digital hash and a digital document of any kind is a one to one thing if you change one bit in the document you get a completely different hash. Yeah, I, I guess, I don't know if it's a great analogy, but I liken the Bitcoin blockchain to like a gigantic Jenga tower. And if mm -hmm. you pull out one block, the whole thing collapses. Right, and that one block is one bit. And one bit's different. It all collapses. And, and, and we that build, could be a comma 
right. or a space or a letter or one pixel in a picture. Right. I mean, it could be a change that's so small that a human could never find it looking at it. I mean, you well, can use tools to find it, but, I mean, can you really tell if your red shirt is one thousandth of a percent different in hue? No. Yeah. On one thread? Hmm. You know, you, you, you couldn't see that. Hmm. But you change effectively one thread in your shirt, if your shirt's a digital document, and you will get a completely different hash and it won't match. Hmm. So this is proof that not just the document hasn't been altered, but, you know, it literally has not been altered in any, any way, or the hashes break. Okay. And, and so, so I don't believe that governments will have any problem with using Bitcoin as the, the proof of work that exists in Bitcoin to secure the data integrity of uh, data. Um, well, I do have one question. So you talked about addresses. So I can tell based on an address, if it's on a main street somewhat, I can mm -hmm. tell certain things about the property. Um, perhaps the same, as the, the same as with Bitcoin blockchain. I'm sure there are a few things where you can kind of tell, okay, you know, I can tell some things about this address, but not nearly everything. Like Fifth Avenue. Yeah. You know, if you're New York Fifth Avenue address, right? You're, you're, that, that tells you something. If I say Main Street, uh, Medford, Oklahoma, that tells you something else. Yeah. Um, ha digital like hashes, that? no. Nothing like that. No. Okay, good. Dig digital hashes are like lottery numbers. They, 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 there is a one-to-one -one, uh, correspondence between a document and a hash, but you change anything about the document, you get a completely, radically different 32 bytes. It's gotcha. like rolling dice for 100 years again. Wow. It's actually actually worse than that. It, the, the 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 complexity of a, of a 32 byte number is um, it, most laymen think that if I say 32 bytes, which for all practical purposes is 32 characters, many of us couldn't write our address in 32 characters, just not long enough if, mm -hmm. if it were a form. Um, but if I look at it mathematically where each character is, is one of 256 options, and I multiply 256 times 256 times 256, so forth, for 32 times, I get a number so astronomically large that when you're taking a document and you're just randomly picking a number within that space, mm -hmm. it's just crazy different. Right. Okay. No relation whatsoever, one dot, one one hash to another tells you okay. nothing. So what? Um, so you talked about Department of Homeland Security, um, mortgages. Mm -hmm. um, I forget what else. But any well, other? Well, uh, we we're we have a uh, contract with uh, or or project a grant from the Gates Foundation. Okay. And what we're doing there is we are working to create a way to find and locate medical documents for people. Um, in developing world, in the develop, developing world, like for example, uh, let's say a country in Africa, or or one of any other um, areas, uh, might be might have civil wars, might be uh, having regime changes on, on occasion, uh, could be that uh, very very few resources and 
so that NGOs, uh, not uh, non-government agencies, organizations, are swapping out. Um, maybe one group provides some medical care for a while, and then that group leaves, and another group comes in. So you might have a combination of uh, charities, of clinics, of government organizations, and others coming in and doing uh, providing care for for the population. Now I have a now now you have a person who comes in for treatment. It becomes very critical to have their medical history, an accurate medical history, and um, a immutable ledger, perhaps tied to a biometric marker of some kind. Um, could provide a means of gathering this information from many different organizations and ensuring that you have the medical documents to provide the proper care. Um, what does that do? It means that you don't duplicate uh, vaccines, you know, if the person's up, up to date. It means that you don't uh, provide treatments that are in conflict with treatments in the past. Um, perhaps it means that you have better tools for diagnosis because you can get notes from other visits with other care providers. Um, so in an environment where things are somewhat chaotic and, and look, face it, even in the United States, when you go in to see a doctor, after you've moved through five or six towns or something like that and gone through several insurance companies and and found different doctors that were um, uh, covered by your different insurance plans over time, mm -hmm. you may have it a very hard time providing a coherent medical history to a physician. Well, the, the thing is, too, you're relying on the doctor or the hospital or these institutions to keep your data, and it really should be yours that you take with you. A doctor may go to a different hospital, may shut down, may die, may... So your information is really in the hands of other people. Maybe this would put it within your... Well, it can conceivably... Now, uh, America and the Western, Western Europe and, and places like that, you know, we have first world kinds of problems. We want um, control of our information. Privacy is a big concern and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, in the developing world, uh, those, it, it may be a little tumped over and it may be that there's more concern about how do I get the information to the provider who's providing care with um, kind of secondary concerns about ensuring that there's the proper privacy and proper protections of that information. Okay. Because um, the extent that you need to go, the extent that you need to go to protect private information is kind of dependent upon how valuable that private information is. For example, I have a number sitting on my desk uh, right there. I just looked on a piece of paper and it has a number. It's private. You don't know what it is, but I'll tell it to you. It's three. Okay. Well, three doesn't tell you a lot. It's not very interesting. It, and even if I were to tell you that's the page number that, that, that I pointed to, Okay, how many documents have page three? Right. And how many documents do I have that have page three? Hmm. Now, if, if that turns out to be some critical document that has my secret keys to tons of, of uh, uh, Bitcoin or something like that, now those are numbers 
I really, really, really wouldn't tell you. Right. Okay. But so so basically, things that really, really need to be private need to be protected quite a bit. Now, our pri our health information in the U.S. on a person by person basis has um, a great deal more monetary value and uh, can be more easily abused in the Western world than in developing countries. And, and okay. hence, there's a difference in security concerns. But, I mean, it's all a concern. It's just a question of what's more important. We're trying to prevent um, the loss of life and, and, mm -hmm. and the delivery of better uh, care in a world where that's difficult to deliver um, in this particular case with the Gates Foundation. Um, we will learn quite a bit that we can apply to the Western world, and um, we look forward to doing that. Okay. So where is Factum today? You know, we're doing this interview in early 2017. What's the plan for this year? How much adoption is there going to be of it? Oh, well, massive adoption, worldwide uh, disruption, many industries changed. Um, I, it's very, very hard to tell. Um, some of that is a little facetious. Some of it is some hope. We do believe that by this time next year, there will be um, big um, changes in at least some sectors, um, in some small corner of those sectors where we are able to deploy this technology and show how it reduces cost and reduces fraud, waste, and abuse and provides more accountability, makes things work better. And uh, we, we look forward to proving that. Um, technically, on the protocol side, Right now, we have uh, the distributed protocol running, uh, and it's live, and we intend to, over, the, over this year, move towards uh, elections, and elections will firmly distribute the um, operation of the protocol across many parties and provide the users of the protocol a voice in ensuring that, in governance, ensuring that the people that are running those servers are the best people for the job and provide oversight. So when you when you say running a server, is that like running a full node? No, this is more like running a miner, except Factum doesn't really have miners. And so what we have are federated servers. And the federated servers are elected effectively by the users of the protocol. Hmm. So Factum is a, an exercise in setting up all the incentives and the and governance and um, oversight uh, of a protocol and distributing uh, the responsibility across many parties. And the idea is that if you have distributed responsibility and distributed oversight and distributed um, uh, uh, elections uh, feedback that's weighed by your interest in the protocol, not not weighed by speculation, that uh, you can build a distributed autonomous protocol that runs without a centralized authority that's that's running the show. So that's the idea. So how does someone? Where does the weight of a given vote come from? Comes from the entry credits. Um, Factum has a, is the only cryptocurrency out there that I'm aware of that has a two-token system. Uh, we have the, the tradable token that provides our incentives, um, the factoid, 
and it's listed on exchanges. You can buy it and that sort of thing um, from exchanges. Uh, it varies in price. Um, we, we, on the other side, we have entry credits. Entry credits are actually used to uh, drive the protocol. Um, the exchange rate between the factoids and the entry credits is uh, dynamic, set by uh, the server, the, the people running the servers. Um, it is intended to be kept sta stable. Right now, uh, the target is a tenth of a cent per entry credit. Mm. A, an entry credit buys you 1K of data in a chain somewhere. And if you wanted to create a chain, you use 10 entry credits or about a penny to create a chain and a tenth of a penny put in a small entry. Hmm. Um, a bigger entry, like 10K entry, would be a penny, um, basically a tenth of a cent per K. <coughs> the entry credits, uh, this two token system provides um, a couple of things for us. One, it allows the users of the protocol to avoid ever buying a tradable token. Because if I'm a bank or I'm a, a government or I'm a business, I don't want applications to have to be managing wallets and tradable tokens, which increases risk of hacking because basically tradable tokens are worth money. Right. And if you have to put money into the applications that you're running, then you increase the, the um, uh, risk of some hacker trying to break into the application to steal those tokens. Um, furthermore, there's regulatory issues with trading tokens, and there are also um, uh, issues where, uh, accounting, where accounting becomes difficult, because what if you buy a set of tokens and they go up in value right. astronomically? You know, if I'm buying tokens to drive an application, and they can go up dramatically in price, then suddenly I've got tax reporting issues. And who wants a document management system that's providing the proper data integrity and everything else to have to be tied into your accounting system for tax purposes? Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. So the entry credits, because they're fixed value and they're non-tradable, they um, they they act like coupons or or a subscription. You you have a fixed cost up front. You use them up, and you buy some more. They're like gas that you put in a car. Mm -hmm. It's an expense you account for occasionally, and then you just don't worry about it otherwise. Um, and the um, the other thing is that because I've we have the two token system, uh, there's one token transaction to pur purchase some number of entry credits and then those entry credits just decrement down as you use them. Right. It turns out from a data point of view that's a much smaller transaction to document a decrement of, of, a, of a register because there's no input and output. There's just the one thing that gets decremented. Okay. Um, there's a lot less bookkeeping so, there's, so it reduces how much data that's in our system. The other thing is we we segregate the entry um, credits away from the actual data. So if you've been following Bitcoin and listening to their segregated witness and all that sort of thing, this is a, a mechanism that's like segregated witness on steroids because in the end the data is completely separate from these entry credits that we're decrementing 
and it's which are completely segregated away from the factory transaction that created the entry credits in the first place. Okay. So so all of this um, is a mechanism to reduce how much data an application has to look at to run it because in the end the application doesn't care about all the bookkeeping that we need in the protocol. Right. They only care about the data. So. so what's the stake required to have a voice in choosing the federated servers or have a voice in Factum's future? You buy the entry credits, you get a voice. Okay. So the, vo vo the vote that you make towards your servers will be um, based on a signature of an entry credit address and the weight of that will depend upon the um, entry credits that have been added to that okay. address yes. and, and, and when they were and when they were added. So having in, having spent entry credits in the past doesn't necessarily mean you have a voice um, forever. It means that you have a voice for a while. And um, the particulars of how this architecture will work, we're, we're going to be working out over the um, next okay. year. There's some other discussions about it that I've I've written up and put out there in our white papers um, for uh, Factum. They can be found in GitHub um, in the Factum Docs uh, repository or going to our website. You can find the, uh, the okay. documentation, factum.org uh, and factum.com. Okay, just a couple of quick final questions. Any um, showstoppers or potential big problems you see coming that would affect them causing it to have to anchor into a different blockchain or um, mm -hmm. anything that would, would really shake up the whole ecosystem and affect you guys? Well, I, it won't affect us much, but what we, we intend to do right now, um, and we haven't yet, but in the next couple of months, we'll begin anchoring in Ethereum, oh. and we'll also be anchoring inside of Bitcoin, of course, and those anchors will be available for other parties to record and 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 keep as their public witness of the um, these basically these Merkle roots for the Factum ledger. If I have one Merkle root of the latest block, there's basically a hash chain that goes all the way back to the Genesis block. In fact, I, I can basically prove everything from that hash all the way back. And um, if I want to prove the timestamps, the, the time in which blocks have been written, within some fairly large margin of error, certainly, but 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 certainly not you know uh, days and weeks, right? Um, then when you go through the factum ledger, you find these, you you get these anchors, these hashes that are documented, and I can find the Bitcoin transaction where those hashes exist. And can basically peg to the Bitcoin blockchain the ledger that was created in Factum. And you could kind of think of it as a as a bridge that has um, pylons that right. go down. Basically, Factum is providing a way to take this this proof of work that Bitcoin is creating, which is a massive, massive, yeah. um, massively useful and massive in security resource that um, right now can only be applied to pretty much a megabyte worth of data per 10 minutes. Right. Factum is increasing that by, um, by orders of magnitude. Mm 
There are some 10-minute blocks in Factum that are uh, 20, 30 megabytes in size. Well, I can't put 20 or 30 megabytes of data into a one meg block. Right. And in fact, I probably can only put maybe, I'd be lucky to put a K into a block reliably. So Factum provides a way to get that security, that the hash power of each of those Bitcoin um, blocks and apply it to much bigger data sets. Yes, okay. Um, any, and again, any factors you see on the horizon? Maybe, um, I guess you went to Satoshi Roundtable. Yes. Be able to disclose anything you got from there that you can disclose, or um, um, anything you know that could be potential seismic changes in the industry. Well, I, I, there are a lot of things that were said that were very, very interesting. Um, one is that uh, there were people talking about. Um, discussions that are being had at the highest level in a lot of banks. Um, one of the comments is that there's an extinction event on the horizon. And just the same way cars, you know, eradicated certain businesses like the buggy, uh, buggy whip business and, right. uh, and the um, uh, horse carriage business, okay, wasn't immediate. It was over time, but it was pretty substantial and pretty quick. Um, airplanes uh, and uh, airplanes and automobiles eradicated the, pass the passenger train for much of the country. We still have some commuting trains on the East Coast and some other places, but compared to the predominance of a mode of transportation, that the train was in the 1800s and the 1900s, it doesn't exist today. Right. It's it's pretty much on the sidelines. Um, not that trains aren't moving lots of freight, but 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 passenger chains uh, change. The, so there there are these big events, and 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 the blockchain and instant settlement and um, data security breaking up systems of record into systems of authority where there's an authority that, that, that um, assigns uh, credibility to certain data, and, but there are many systems that can hold it and, and use that uh, authority. Um, these are going to radically change a lot of businesses. And, uh, and banking is, is one of the businesses that are, that are um, apparently, according to people at Satoshi Square, uh, or Satoshi Roundtable, um, a lot of these people are are saying this is this is an extinction event that that blockchain is radically going to change banking and finance. Um, we have had um, banking and finance move from three percent of the GDP in the 1800s to today. If I restrict it to just the the services that that banks provided in the 1800s. Um, banks are, are arguably 8%, 10% of GDP today. If I add the services that they've invented since then, mm -hmm. the, uh, banking and finance could be as much as 30% of GDP. Well, 30% of GDP is 10 times more than 3%, for those of you that are not uh, math savvy. Um, but that means that they've been outstripping uh, production, 
you know, good production of goods and services, you know, the, the hardcore stuff that we used to build. Yeah. Um, and uh, I believe that the blockchain could significantly increase efficiencies, and I believe Bitcoin as a store of value could significantly change how finance works, um, maybe even change how monetary systems are viewed. Hmm. And uh, I believe that uh, big, big, big changes are on the horizon, and they're across the board from from the big the concept of value and how you define value and how you maintain um, value over time. Stores of value, um, distribution of value, uh, those sort of things. And that's going to change things. Data integrity is going to change things. Audit trails are going to change things. And um, yeah, it's going to be amazing. Okay. Any Anything else I should have asked you? I mean, there's a lot to talk about. You've got a huge store of knowledge. <laughs> You've got a gigantic Merkle tree of knowledge in your head. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Any, well, any last thoughts that uh, uh, we should talk about, or is that good? I think that's pretty good. I, 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 some people ask me if I'm worried about Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin is proving to be way, way, way more resilient and useful than, um, than anyone ever expected. Um, I believe that we have demonstrated that Bitcoin can move from a payment rail for a few weirdo libertarians, okay. right, and uh, and move towards a store of value um, that uh, could conceivably be used by institutions and um, and for investment. Um, we will have a cryptocurrency payment rail. Um, the question is whether it will be based on Bitcoin or other tokens. So okay. I, I I predict that that 2017 will be a even greater um, year of change for the cryptocurrency world. And uh, I'm very very optimistic. I'm very very excited. I'm giving no particular predictions because my predictions tend to be completely off base right. um, but uh, that's uh, pretty much my my view of the of the sphere and so and it, for as much as anybody cares about my views yeah well, very good all right Paul Snow a factum uh, thanks for taking the time I appreciate it yeah no problem thank you you've been listening to almost here around the corner of future technology podcast with Richard Jacobs Subscribe to this podcast, both to review and discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.